Now, persecution, I feel like, is, is one of those sermons. I remember when we were at, at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, uh, Pastor Tyler's dad, he, he, used to, he used to say, there's some sermons that you can teach that'll just make people feel guilty. If that's what you want to do, here's the ones that you teach. And he would always say, you can teach, you know, you need to tithe more, you need to pray harder, you need to evangelize more. And he said, you go for it. People will feel guilty. I think this is one of those. I think it'd be very easy to teach a sermon like this in a way that would make us all going home saying, I, I need to go get thrown, rocks thrown at me. I, I'm not a good enough believer. And I don't want to do that. I don't think that's the right way for us to approach this. And we'll talk about that a little more. So it is important, though, for us to know what's going on with our brothers and sisters in the whole world, to know how they are suffering, if they're suffering, and to be able to pray for that. Um, and the reason is for a couple things. Number one, the Bible tells us that we should pray for each other and care about our brothers and sisters when they're suffering. And number two, it helps us to remember that, hey, we're part of the global church. It's not just our church here, right? It, although this is what the Lord is doing with us, but we're part of what's going on with the, the gospel in the entire world. And it connects us to them when we remember that there are some of our brothers and sisters who are going through a very difficult time. So we're going to kind of quickly go through some global things. Now, I'm just going to say, right, off the bat, I, I was very careful as I tried to research some of these facts and figures. You can find a lot of numbers on the internet. I don't know if you guys know. Numbers for everything. Not all of them are good. So I, I tried very hard to make sure that what we're going to be talking about today is things that I feel confident are as accurate as I can be. Um, I'm sure that there are still mistakes. When you're talking about how do you count the number of people who have suffered in many places illegally, it's very difficult to know how would you count that. By definition, this isn't something that gets reported every time it happens. So um, it, we're going to do the best that we can to get an idea of what's going on. That's all I'll say about that. But in the last year, it's believed that 260 million Christians experienced serious persecution, and that would be just in the top 50 countries of what's called the World Watch List. The World Watch List is something that gets compiled by a ministry called Open Doors every year. Um, it's a resource that I use for a lot of what we're going to talk about today. I would encourage you to look into it more. It's got a ton of information. And what they do is they try and rank in some way the top 50 countries where Christians are experiencing persecution. And just in that top 50 list, they believe that 260 million Christians experienced serious persecution in the year 2020. That is a 6% increase, they think, from the year 2019. So is persecution a thing that's going on? Absolutely. Is it increasing? It seems to be increasing from, from what we can see. They believe that 2020 was pretty unique because of what happened with the coronavirus. There are a lot of cases where um, things got worse for believers because of the coronavirus that governments would use it as an excuse and, and things like that. We'll talk about that a little. We believe that almost 3,000 Christians uh, were martyred in the last year. If you kind of space that out evenly, that would be approximately eight per day. Um, almost 10,000 churches or Christian buildings were attacked, and about 3,700 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, imprisoned, some form of, of detainment. Oftentimes, that's completely without a, a legal basis. One of eight Christians, so if you look at all the Christians globally, about one of eight of them live in a country where the faith is persecuted. And an estimated 75% of religiously motivated violence and oppression specifically targets Christians. I find that last one fascinating, don't you? That, of course, there's, you know, religious violence that goes on. I mean, that's the story of history, right? But 75% of it right now is specifically targeting Christians. I find that really interesting. And we'll talk about that. So... Open Doors with this World Watch List, they kind of compile this list, and, and every year they kind of try and rank them. Of course, this is, uh, we're just doing our best, right? But they believe that in terms of the difficulty of persecution, um, the top 10 that they list this year, they said it's relatively unchanged from past years. 
Uh, North Korea is number one. Of course, in North Korea, you have a unique situation where you have one of the most oppressive dictatorial regimes in the world, and they're able to basically completely control their population. And one of the things they're doing is absolutely trying to stamp out Christianity. Um, then you have uh, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, and India. Now those middle eight, you can kind of see a, a similar theme there is most of those are going to be radical Islam, Islamist regi regimes where there, there's a complete religious motivation. Islam is trying to persecute Christianity in that case. Um, and then the last one, India, is unique, and we won't even have time to talk about this a lot, but India is experiencing a lot of newer persecution than had been previous. Tyler knows a lot about this. It's, it's kind of a similar situation to Nepal, from my understanding, where the government is kind of saying, listen, we've got too many religions here for us to deal with, so nobody can convert to anything. So some religions are fine with this. Christians, of course, are trying to evangelize, and that causes a lot of problems. So India is going through a lot of difficulties. I couldn't find a precise... Uh, number. I found some widely varying numbers and I didn't really know what to trust, but it's safe to say that in the 20th century alone there were tens of millions of Christian martyrs. Um, some people say that there were, you know, the, the number was so wide I just didn't want to quote one, but certainly tens of millions of, of martyrs. A lot of those um, would have come from things like communist regimes uh, in China and the Soviet Union from the 40s on. Uh, and every country's situation is different. But for, first of all, I think we can see one, this is very widespread, right? This isn't just something where we're talking about, hey, in this one country, it's difficult for Christians. All over the world, um, there are Christians who are experiencing really difficult persecution. And I, I, I want to make clear, too, and we'll, as we talk about different situations, a lot of times when we hear about this in, in, in the West, because there's so much, and you can get, there's so much going on, you can get a little bit confused, and you get bombarded with this information, it's important to remember that Sometimes what we hear about is just the really difficult things. There are countries that don't even make the top 50, don't make the top 100, where Christians are still experiencing difficulty and persecution, right? Um, so it's not just a matter of, hey, in these countries, Christians are being killed. There's Christians who experience illegal seizure of their property, or they experience social pressure, all, all these kinds of different things that happen. So I want us to remember it's, it's even more widespread than just, hey, in you know, these countries, Christians are being killed. So... We could go, there's, we could spend so much time. And what I want to do, and I'm sure we'll do this again and we'll try and update us, but I've chosen a couple, Christian, a couple places that I'm a little more familiar with because I feel like if I'm going to tell you guys about what's going on, I want it to be things that I either talk to somebody or I'm a little more aware of what's going on or I was able to do more research. And we're going to look at those a little bit clo more closely for our own prayer. And we'll spend some time tonight uh, in, in prayer as well about these places. So one of the first ones I want to talk about is uh, China. China is number uh, 23 right now on, on the World Watch list. You will be hearing a lot about China, I think, in the, in the next couple of years, if you haven't already, uh, for a lot of reasons. China is maneuvering to do things politically, and that impacts our brothers and sisters when that happens, because the Chinese government being communist, they have a really strong desire to control what goes on inside the country to present a, a look to the rest of the world, and that's really impacting the church right now. Um, it's estimated that there are 97 million Christians in China. Now, I'm leaning on estimated. Why is that? It's a huge number, right? Of those Christians, we are not really aware what that means in China. So how many of those Christians are confessing believers? Of course, that's, you know, that's true. You could say, how, there's how many Christians in America? And we'd all say, hmm, <laughs> but how many, right? But that's uniquely different in China. Why? 
because right now the, the Chinese regime is imposing and has been imposing for years a state-sanctioned church. It's called the Three Self Movement. And what the Three Self Movement is, is essentially it's a controlled communist church where the church knows what's going on. They mandate the sermons, the doctrine. They control what's, what goes on inside the church. They have, people think, like underground kind of agents in the church. And they're using those churches to monitor the population. And a large number of those 93 million people would be going to a three-self church. Then there are also underground churches where believers say, this is not the word, this is not the gospel, this is not what I want to be part of. And they would go to a completely illegal church that they organize themselves. Then there is some overlap. There are some believers who by day kind of are going to a three-self church, maybe because there's pressure that they have to do that. And then by night, they're going to an underground church. So I can't be sure of this statistic, but they think that there are 22 million believers who are involved in underground churches in some way in China, which is a staggering statistic. That's a huge number of people. Um, and China is continuing to try and systematically persecute anything but state-mandated groups. Um, you may have heard a lot about the Uyghurs. They're a, a, a Muslim sect that are being persecuted by the Chinese government. They're being put in internment camps where they're basically being brainwashed and re-educated because the Chinese government is afraid of them for various reasons. Um, that's happening right now just to them, but you can see in a lot of ways that China is building an apparatus that they're going to use now against any religious organization that they feel is dangerous, and Christianity is very high on that list for China. And they're doing this not just with kind of the classic tools that we think of about persecution, but with some very advanced tools. So they're using all the, technolo all the technology, all the surveillance you can imagine. It's estimated that there are 415 million surveillance cameras in China. So if you're counting, if you've got 22 million underground believers and 415 million surveillance cameras, they're keeping an eye on everybody. Um, China is implementing what's called a social credit system. Uh, which is just about as dystopian as it sounds. <laughs> what a social credit system is, is that they are using um, applications on people's phones that will essentially give you points for different behavior. Pro-social behavior will give you positive points. Negative anti-social behavior, in whatever way the state defines that, will give you negative points. Of course, as soon as this is rolled out, it's not official from the, from the CCP, from the Communist Party, but certain municipalities get to control what their app does. And so they say, well, let's add you know, unauthorized Christian activity to the list because we're having a problem with that. So you can see how this becomes a very real thing. The, the, this tool is being used, they think, will be incorporated into the economy, they think, in some way. So it's a real tool of control that they can use to punish people that they feel are not doing what they want. And uh, one of the latest things I've recently read about is there are new, very new regulations that are forbidding anyone under the age of 18 from entering church buildings or participating in church activities. So that's pretty direct, right? Let's make sure that it's only the old people who go to church, right? We'll kill it you know, in, a, in a generation. Once the young people realize that this isn't cool anymore, um, of course, the Lord knows there's now apparently a huge youth movement in underground churches where they're organizing their own Bible studies and, and doing it all themselves, praise the Lord. Um, so we'll see this as a theme throughout. You'll see this is what the enemy is doing, right? And then you'll see, but here's what the Lord is doing anyway, right? So I want to make sure that we don't, you know, a lot of times we can hear this stuff and you can feel, you know, disappointed and discouraged and afraid. That's not how we're supposed to look at these things, right? Because we'll talk about, we know that this is happening. We know it has happened and it will continue to happen. But what is the Lord doing? That's what I want us to remember all the time. Because, of course, this stuff is heartbreaking and we need to keep our eyes uh, focused on the Lord. So China has continued to do what's called sinicizing, which just basically means making Chinese. Um, 
all the religions in the country, stripping them of any content that's deemed Western. And this is because the, the Communist Party is afraid that Western influence is going to change people's minds and push them away from communist ideology. So they really don't, it's a very cynical thing. They're not concerned so much about Christianity as they think, well, but if they are looking to the West for their ideas, that won't make them Chinese. Now, of course, we know it'll do a lot of other spiritual things, won't it? <laughs> but their, their primary concern is they're afraid of people not towing the party line. And so this includes in the three self-churches, the official churches, they've re removed displays of the Ten Commandments and replaced them with quotations from uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Um, there, you know, there's churches where all kinds of material will be removed, crosses and church property confiscated, people threatened and, and all this stuff. And then you'll go back to the municipality and they say, yeah, we're not really aware of that happening. I'm not sure what you're talking about. So um, we could go on and on. Just Essentially, it's becoming increasingly difficult for Christians to practice actual Christianity, the faith as we know it, in China without doing it in an illegal, covert way. And as they lose even the little access that they had to political influence or sanction, Chinese Christians are growing and multiplying through the way Christians have always grown and multiplied, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through gospel transformation. It's thought that at this time the Chinese church is one of the fastest growing Christian movements in history. Ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And um, we also think that, again, because we don't know the numbers, it's difficult. We think that China may account for one of the largest concentrations of Christians on, on the globe. That's just the numbers game, right? The Lord knew, well, look, you've got a lot of people together. Look what I'm going to do, right? And so because there's such a concentration just of human beings, the gospel is spreading incredibly quickly. Um, and sometimes I think when you put the faith underground, it goes faster. That's just a hunch that I have. Um, but praise the Lord, the, the enemy is not able to stop what's going on in China, but these people need your, your prayer, obviously. It's got to be incredibly discouraging, especially within your family. You can imagine you can go to church, but your kids can't publicly go to church. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you train them and bring them up in the training of the Lord when if you do that in a public way, there's going to be huge repercussions for you? So all kinds of things that we need to be um, praying for them. I'm going to move on. This is hard. I have so much stuff I want to tell you guys about. You'll have to ask me later, but we do need to move on because I want to make sure we spend enough time teaching ourselves and our hearts what we need to do with this. So let's go to the next, um, next slide. We're going to talk a little bit about Israel and the West Bank. Now, neither of these countries, you're going to, not going to find them on the, the world watch list. Um, and this is, I wanted to bring this out. There's, there's persecution that goes on, even if it's not in these really intense places. And sometimes in the places where the persecution is the most intense, we can get the least information about it because, it, you know, I cannot go <laughs> to a place like Afghanistan or Iran right now and tell you what's going on because I'm not allowed. But there are places where I can go. They're typically more open countries where persecution still happens, but it's not quite as intense. Um, it's difficult to know the exact numbers of the body of Christ in Israel and in the West Bank, but evangelical believers are going to be in the extreme minority in both of those areas. Um, Part of my, when I, my work for my job, I spend time in, in Israel uh, and the West Bank a little bit. And the latest numbers that I've found that I trust are that there may be about 30,000 you know, Messianic believers in Israel. That would be Jewish people who believe in Jesus as their Messiah, who are Christians. Um, about 30,000. There may be more, but that's a conservative number. In the West Bank, evangelical Christians are a tiny minority of a tiny minority. So only about 1% of the population in the West Bank are Christian Arabs, meaning in ancestry and in culture, their family was Christian, doesn't necessarily mean confessing. Um, and then of those, there may be about 1,000 evangelical believers in the entire West Bank or Palestinian territories. I was shocked when I read that number, 1,000 people. 
Um, and don't think 1,000 people together. That's, they're spread out in different towns, and a lot of that area is like tiny little towns. So it's a really difficult situation for evangelical believers there. And of course, you've got all the other difficulties in the West Bank and, and stuff, so you can ask me about that later. But they, uh, th both of those numbers, are there's a lot of difficulty. So we're going to jump back and forth between these two groups because even though the, and this is a story that I love, even though the enemy wants to divide them and make them different and, and split them over a political line, they're so similar in the things that they're going through. And in a lot of ways, that's actually uniting them. There's members of those different churches that are coming together and saying, we're both suffering for the Lord. Let's, let's be together as brothers and sisters, which is really cool. Uh, Messianic Jewish people face persecution usually when they try and immigrate to Israel. So the law is, if you're Jewish, you, if you have a certain percentage of, of Jewish ancestry, you, by law, have to be able to get uh, Israeli citizenship. The carve out there is that that is true for everybody except someone who claims the name of Christ. And you'll find that very commonly in uh, Israeli society. It's acceptable to be Jewish and anything. You can be Jewish and Buddhist. You can be Jewish and just weird. You can be Jewish and anything you want. But you can't be a Christian Jew. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it goes back to some terrible persecution of the Jews by the church. I use that term loosely in the past. But they essentially, there's a spiritual blockage that they have where they, they completely refuse to accept that you could come in and be part of the culture if you claim the name of Jesus. Um, that used to be a lot worse, praise the Lord. Some of that is improving. And some of that is because the church is growing and people are seeing that the people in the Messianic Church, love Israel, love the people around them, and, and so that's a good thing that's happening, but it is still difficult. They're, they can be denied citizenship, they can have the process interfered with. Um, what you'll see is anywhere where the religious, the ultra-Orthodox religious Jews control a part of government, that part of government makes life very difficult for the Messianic Church. So there's some areas where it's fine, and then if you go to another town where the municipality is different, all of a sudden that church in that place goes through problems. You know, there's a, a town that I recently heard about their, their church, essentially the, the inspector came up. Imagine the fire inspector comes in and he says, hey, um, this is wrong, that's bad, this is wrong, that's going to cost, you know, $30,000, you need to fix it next week or we'll shut the church down. And he just kind of walks out and they're like, well, the, all this was fine before, so all, all this stuff can get, you know, it can be very fuzzy, right? Is that a legal problem? Who do you go to? It's, it can be really difficult. Uh, while there can be less and less issues, like I said, facing those who are in the Messianic church, right, because there's been years and years of the Messianic church growing. Um, if you convert from an ultra-Orthodox community, like let's say you were in ultra-Orthodox Judaism and you are, the gospel is shared with you and you, 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 you come to saving faith, these people are essentially cast out of their families to, to fend for themselves. And oftentimes you imagine any hardcore religious group, sometimes when they come out of their families, they don't have any, they don't have a home, they don't never had a job, they don't know how to work in normal society because they were such a little tiny group and it can be really difficult. So they, especially for the ultra-Orthodox community and Muslim background believers, they could use a lot of your prayer because when they do get saved, there's a long road kind of ahead of them. So very similar situation in the West Bank, for Muslim background converts, they can face abuse or death threats from family members if they convert. Because of that, most Muslim background believers in the West Bank, from what we can tell, kind of exist in little tiny house church networks, or they're completely isolated. They don't know any other believers, they don't have any other way to meet with other believers, because if they do, that would out them to their family as a believer, and that could cause a huge problem for them. Um, even worse, occasionally, a lot of Muslim background believers aren't going to be accepted if they come to an Arab Christian church because there's a deep cultural divide in the Arab world between Arab Christians and Muslims. 
they're two different cultures. I wasn't aware of this until fairly recently. So some of the stories I heard, it almost sounded like, you know, church in the South, in the really bad time in the South, where you'd have white churches and black churches because, well, we're just different. They don't, they, they can't hang out with us is kind of the attitude. So you can have Muslims who get saved. They're so excited. Oh, well, this is a church. I'm going to go to this church. And the Arab Christians there say, yeah, but you're a Muslim. And they're like, no, I got saved. I'm like, yeah, but you're a Muslim. So like, we can't trust you. And they, they won't be allowed to participate, which is something that really needs prayer. There's a lot of healing, a lot of mistrust that's been built up over the years that the Lord needs to heal um, so that these people can be part of fellowship. They really need maturity and to be built up in the word. And um, the Lord is going to need to provide that for them. Evangelicals in the West Bank can face opposition from the establishment churches if they attempt to evangelize. So the way that the Palestinian Authority works, they recognize certain churches, mostly Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, things like that. Evangelical churches are not recognized, which means that the establishment churches, and this happens in several different places, they'll say, hey, don't rock the boat. Don't go evangelizing people. Like, we're, we're trying, it's hard enough for us. Don't be doing that. And so you can actually have Christian churches telling Christian churches not to evangelize because of the problems that it might cause, which is um, disappointing, I guess, is a, is a word you could use for it. Jumping back over to the, to the Messianic side, um, the vast majority of young Messianics, so in, in Israel, if you have Jewish ancestry, you're required to serve mandatory military service when you graduate high school. So you have all these, you imagine, you know, you're raising your kid up in the Lord, and they turn 18, and now you have to send them to the military for a three-year hitch. Uh, when that happens, because of how dispersed the, the community is, and there's not that many believers, right? Only 30,000 believers or so. The, the vast majority of young Messianic believers will be the only believer in their military unit, which makes mandatory military service for them a really difficult time. They're extremely isolated. They're lonely. There's huge amounts of temptation. Israeli society is extremely worldly. Um, and you're in the military. So there's a lot of opportunities for them to be tempted to fall. And then, unfortunately, sometimes in the church, there's not a lot of acceptance or love or grace for them when they come back out of that. Um, I have spoken to some young people who believe that about 50% of Messianic young people no longer profess Christ after their military service. So imagine you're, you're sending your kids off and 50% of them come back to the church, so, which is just devastating. And then those young people, they go off and they think, well, the church didn't, wasn't there for me and all this stuff. And there's a lot of anger and guilt and things like that. So there's a real need for the Lord to keep them strong through that and for there to be grace in the church for people who have struggled because uh, it's a really difficult situation. Um, again, I got tons and tons of stories. Um, the one thing I just, and this is, this was so encouraging to me. I remember I was, I was hanging out one time with a Arab believer. He was about my age and I was, you know, you, you spend time with these people and they tell you, yeah, this is what's going on in my life. And it was hard because of this. And this whole group of my family doesn't really hang out with us anymore because we got this part of my family got saved. And I was just like, man, like, how can I like pray for you? Um, and he said, well, he said, I pray for you because Christianity in the United States is easy and there are many distractions. That was humbling. <laughs> to have somebody who's really going through, you know, difficulty, he says, no, I think it's hard for you because it's, it's easy for you to be a believer. And it, it, he said, the difficulty for me keeps me close to the Lord, which was very, very humbling for me. Um, so be praying for them. There's, I can, uh, we'll give you prayer points tonight, and there's so many things that we could talk about. But essentially, the gospel is continuing to go on in what I think, personally, I think Israel and the West Bank are some of the hardest ground in the world because there's not unreached people there. They've all been pretty reached by religion. They know the answers. They've heard all the, all the pitch, right? Um, and there's hard, hard hearts. And yet the, the Lord is still doing work. The gospel is still going forward no matter what. Uh, last one that we're going to talk about, let's talk about uh, Russia. 
real briefly. Russia is now back on the top 50 list, they're 46th. That wasn't true for a long time. When the Iron Curtain fell, all of a sudden there was this massive opportunity for Russia to be evangelized. You could go. And uh, in fact, uh, Pastor Troy from, from Lynchburg, I think he was, if I'm not mistaken, they were on one of the first basically trips that was able to go. And they were, I mean, in the street evangelizing for the first time in years in, in Russia. Um, that our church in Lynchburg has a really close relationship to a church in Vladimir, uh, Russia, that was actually planted kind of after that missions trip. So it's really cool. There's like a lot of history of the Lord working um, through that. Recently, though, Russia has begun to, to crack down on some of this again under uh, the, the Putin regime. And some of it is similar thinking, I think, to what China is doing. Hey, where, why are all these people getting money from the West? Why are all these people listening to people in the West? Doesn't that make them not think like us? And we need to fix that. We need to, we need to crack down on this. So the last time that I was able to visit Russia, we were on a trip with Pastor Tyler led a trip, I think it was in 2016, I think. Um, and we were doing a missions trip. And as the trip was coming to a close, basically right after we were going to get on the plane and go home, Russia had ratified a law called the Yaravaya Law. I probably didn't pronounce that right. And it was just coming into effect after we left. The, this is a set of laws, essentially, that was very huge and very vague. And what it meant was it seems to prevent churches other than the Russian Orthodox Church from proselytizing or holding activities outside of the physical church building, including in people's homes. And so the, the Russia basically is trying to use the Orthodox Church as a way to encourage patriotism, nationalism, listening to the state. Um, that's a holdover from the KGB era. They told us that back in the, you know, in the Soviet era, there would be actual KGB agents within the church that would enact you know, state persecution and stuff through the church. So, um, and this law was so widespread and so sweeping that at the time we were talking to believers and they're like, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it says, and I'm not really sure what's going to happen because I don't know what they're going to do with it. Now, as it comes out that we think it's basically just something they need to keep in their back pocket, they're using it as like an anti-terrorism law. So, hey, you are doing something. Let's find a law that we can use to, to whack you with. But it is, it has been used against Christians. And essentially, it means that if you're doing something outside of your registered church building, the government doesn't have to do anything, but they might if they want to. Now, I was driving around, and this is just, this is a wonderful story. I was driving around with one of the believers there. He was the youth leader at the church in Vladimir. And he, I was asking him all about this, and he was like, I don't know. Like, this is news to me, too. And we're talking about it. And he said, so, I'm not going to try and do his accent because that's offensive. But he said, so, so maybe, um, he said, so maybe I can't have a home fellowship. He said, so is that illegal now? Not sure. Maybe we're not allowed to evangelize in the street. He said, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to not do it. It's just maybe illegal. <laughs> and I was so, you know, there was never a moment. I'm sitting with this guy and he's, I mean, he's got a family and he's got all this stuff. And I love, there was not a moment where he's like, so do we stop home fellowship? He's like, I'm going to do it. It's just maybe now they might get me in trouble. And praise the Lord for that kind of heart that those believers have. And that's true of all the people that we met there. I mean, the young people, the old people, there's a flourishing Russian church that's going on. It's small. It's got a lot of hurdles that it's trying to jump over, but the Lord's doing work and they're doing stuff. They don't really care. I mean, they just go out and do stuff and they're like, well, we'll see what happens. That's very much the Russian attitude I learned is they don't, they don't like to plan stuff. They just kind of like to show up. Everybody figured it out and they say, we'll just go do this. Let's see what happens, which I love that, that heart. Um, even when we were there, um, one of the, we were out street witnessing and one of the uh, guys from the church was stopped 
by the police. So, I mean, we're out there with high schoolers, right? This police car pulls up, the cop gets out, he pulls this guy aside, he's going through his bag, looking at his tracks, and all the kids are like, are we okay? And I'm like, yes. I don't know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, so the, he's, he's going through his bag, he takes the guy into the car, and they go to the station, they talk to him for a while. And what essentially happened, the chief of police, he got questioned, the whole thing. The chief of police released him and said, yeah, this guy was just overzealous. Like, he was hoping to get, like, noticed in accommodation. He had no reason to hold you. Get out of here. But the law since then has been used um, to persecute churches, to shut churches down, to kick missionaries out. But it's in a very spotty way. It's if, if this magistrate or this municipality doesn't like you, they can use this against you. Um, but this does mean that... The, the official state arm of Russia is now again trying to see if they can control the church. Russia's back on the watch list for the first time since 2011. Um, so they definitely do need, do need prayer. Um, the Lord is doing work. It's, again, the same story. The Lord is doing work. The gospel's moving forward. And the enemy's doing whatever he can to try and find places where that's happening and cause pressure. So let's talk a little bit about, because I don't want us to just spend time with our glum faces like, oh my goodness, all these things are going on. Yes, persecution is happening. Why does that happen? Should we expect that? What does the Bible say about that? Um, and so let's get into the Word a little bit. You guys can turn to John 15, uh, starting in verse 18. And we know that persecution has been foretold by Jesus, that we don't know that it's going to be the norm, right? Because we look around and we see, hey, you know what? Compared to them, we're living a pretty peachy life, right? If that's what persecution is, I think I'm doing okay right now, right? But we know that it's something that we should expect. And our temptation when we hear these stories is to be shocked and to be a little bit angry, right? To say, I didn't know that this could go on. And you get a little upset, honestly. But how should we respond to these things? I'm going to read John 15, starting from verse 18. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus is kind of giving his guys the heads up, right? You've got to remember, these are younger guys, and they're like, oh, I'm so excited I'm here with Jesus. And Jesus says, guys, how's it going for me right now? Do they like me? I said, no, <laughs> they don't like you. We're having to go from city to city. And, and this is even before the, the, the Jesus was murdered <laughs> and, and illegally. And, and all these things happen, right? And, but they, they could tell already, no, you're not a neutral figure, right? People either love Jesus or hated Jesus, pretty much. Jesus divided people. He said, I came to bring a sword, right, to divide people. And Jesus said, okay, if you're my students, are you somehow better than me? Are you greater than me? No. So Jesus said, well, then you're going to experience the same treatment that I did. You're not going to miss out on persecution if I was persecuted. So Jesus says we shouldn't be expected to be treated differently. And he notes that often it's our godly life that infuriates people who are in darkness. The light points out the darkness is failure. It points out sin. We know this from the word, right? That the, the darkness can't abide the light and wants to push back against it, right? And we know that this happens, right? We have experience with this, right? No, have we been persecuted in this way? I've never been arrested for, you know, doing this, right? We're not worried that someone's going to come in here and say, you all have to stop this. Praise the Lord, right? And we don't have to feel guilty about that, by the way. I don't, sometimes people can say, it's so easy for you. It's like, listen, this is a blessing. Praise the Lord. We get to do this. This is awesome. We should be thankful to the Lord for that. We don't have to be upset about that, right? That's good. 
But we still see this stuff go on, right? We're, we're not free from that. If you have unsaved family members and you spend any amount of time with them, maybe yours are different from some of the ones that I've encountered in the past, but are they super excited about how excited you are about Jesus? <laughs> it's not happening for me, right? And, and you know what? Sometimes we can get upset and we, because we're like, why are they so angry? It's not just, hey, you have your life and I have my life and we have a difference of opinion. It's intense sometimes. And we can get offended. I can, anyway. But it's important to remember that this is, we shouldn't be shocked by that. They can't understand your whole life. They look at your life and they say, I don't, I cannot comprehend any of that. Why would you do any of those things? They are not able, to, the Bible says that the unspiritual mind isn't able to, to understand those things. And so, of course, they withstand you because to, to them, you, you kind of look crazy. And they're coming against you in an intense spiritual thing. And, and we should expect that, the Bible says. We shouldn't be surprised by that. And sure enough, the church began to see from the beginning of the book of Acts, right? Pastor Tyler just took us to the book of Acts. Didn't take long, right, for people to be upset. And guys, this is important to note. That wasn't like an un, some unreached people group somewhere. God's people got angry with the church really fast, right? That was the people, the one people on the planet who should have been prepared to hear that message. They got very upset. So we're, we shouldn't expect to be immune for any reason, right? Because this is just what has happened from the beginning. We, the Bible says that we will be hated by the world, not loved, not respected, not thought well of. We'll be hated by the world. So we should expect to be hated, right? The Bible says, hey, if everybody's thinking, wow, those Christians, they're so great. I love them. They're so intelligent and so smooth. And I really think that they have good ideas. That's when we need to be worried, guys. If we're not being persecuted because we're so like the world, that's a problem. We need to be careful of that. But also, guys, we should be hated for Jesus, not just for us, right? If you're hated because you're a jerk, that's not persecution, right? That's just because you're not doing, you're not being like Jesus, and therefore people are hating you. I want to be hated because I'm like Jesus, right? If you're hated because you've got some idea that you're just trying to slam down people's throats and it didn't come from the word, then you're hated because, wow, there's that guy and he's about to yell about his thing again. That's not persecution, right? But, so we were, are going to be hated, but let's make sure we're hated because of Jesus. Um, don't have time to get into it, but I would like you guys to look at, when you have time, Matthew 10, 16 through 20. This is the verse about being wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Uh, today I learned that that verse is not about shrewd business transactions that believers should do. It's about persecution. <laughs> Context, right? It's very important. And what Jesus says there is, hey, heads up, guys. You're gonna, you need to be careful. This is going to happen. You should expect it. People are going to come in that are there for persecution. You should be aware. So the one thing that we need to understand, well, several things. Jesus said, I'm not going to let you be ambushed. This is going to happen. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. Be ready for it. But also Jesus reminds us that persecution is spiritual. Persecution is not a physical thing. You can't fight persecution on the physical level, right? Because it's a spiritual thing. It's happening because of the enemy. The devil is orchestrating it. And the Bible makes it clear that we're not supposed to fear man. At the end of that verse in Matthew, Jesus says, don't fear men. They can, all they can do is kill you. Now, for us, that doesn't make us feel better sometimes, right? We're like, yes, that's the point. But, but Jesus is making an important point. He said, this isn't a physical thing, guys. The, in the physical world, you, we could do all kinds of things that we think would fix this. There's never been a time in history where Christians haven't been suffering somewhere. So we can't fix this in the physical level. This is a spiritual thing, and we need to be aware of that. We have to be strong in the Holy Spirit so that we can act the way that we should when we are persecuted. 
We're not going to be able to do that in our flesh. So how should we respond? I want to camp out here kind of in the remaining time that we have. And I want us to go to 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 14. And I'll read it for us. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Okay. So Paul says, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be at opposition to the world. Right? You're going this way. This is what the world wants to do. This is what the enemy wants to do. It's going to be totally different. So we shouldn't expect that we're just going to pass by unnoticed, right? That's not great. If we're just, we're doing our thing for the Lord and the world isn't noticing and seeing any difference, that's, we need to adjust that. And that's all right. You don't, listen, it doesn't mean you say, hey, I'm not getting yelled at every day in the street. I must not be living for Jesus. I don't think that's the case. But if, if we've never experienced any resistance by the world at all, then let's just go home and say, Lord, what, what should I be doing? How should I be living to make sure that I'm looking as like Jesus as I can? Because we should expect at some point there should be some sort of resistance. Now, when that happens, right? He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, Paul, so what? Then that happens. What should I do, right? Well, give me some instructions. Well, what do we usually do, right? We can be tempted to do a couple things. We can say, oh my goodness, we're being resisted. The sky is falling. We need to change something. This, this can't be right. They don't like us. Have you heard? We said that thing and they didn't like it. Stop saying that thing. Well, we can't do that. Right? We can't change or alter what the message of the gospel is just because people don't like it, of course. Sometimes we get tempted to take up the arm of the flesh, right? Well, I don't think you understand. I have the freedom here in the United States to say whatever I want, and you have to deal with it. So I'm going to go to the court. I'm going to do this, right? We, we, it's, a very, it's a typical thing for us because we have been so blessed that when we lose a blessing, we can get really upset, right? Our flesh gets angry. We say, well, you don't understand. I don't think you understand. I'm an American citizen. You can't do these things to me, right? And even that happens when we look out at other believers. We feel there's an injustice to it, right? It's not right that it should happen. The Bible says that martyr's blood cries out to the Lord. It, I don't think we, should, we shouldn't be okay with it. But we should remember that we can't respond in the arm of the flesh to these things. That's not going to do anything, right? Remember, it's a spiritual war. And if we take up a physical implement, right, what happened when Peter said, ah, they're coming to persecute Jesus. I'll fix it, right? Jesus didn't think that was a good idea, right? Jesus said, Peter, will you please cut it out? And, and he heals the man, all, right? So the, the arm of the flesh isn't going to do what we want to do. So when we encounter pain of persecution, or listen, even just opposition, we encounter problems, we encounter people trying to resist what's going on, we, we don't want to be too worried, but we also don't want to lean too hard onto this stuff, right? Like we said, we don't want to create opposition where there is none because we're being harsh or we're behaving badly. And then we say, look, I know that I was preaching the gospel because everybody was upset afterwards. Maybe, but maybe not, right? So we want to make sure that we're, we're living in the way that we should. If we must be persecuted, we know that it's pleasing to God. So what do we do? Well, Paul gives Timothy some advice and honestly, it's sort of boring advice. It's not different. It's not exciting. It's not a totally new. You're like, oh, he hasn't said anything, any of this before. It's kind of similar to the advice that we're always getting from the word about how we should live as believers. What does he say? He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. 
And some of you guys might know three, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And that's that famous passage that starts talking about what all Scripture is. It's good for all these things. So the context is he's saying, hey, the Word is the primary thing that you need to be continuing in because of persecution. So we prepare ourselves for persecution by expecting it. We're not going to be surprised by it. We're not going to be shocked by it. We're going to say, yes, look, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus said this will happen, and it has happened. That's good. It's encouraging in some ways, right? Jesus wasn't lying to you. He, he said it would happen. We're aware that there are going to be wolves who are going to come in from outside the flock and sometimes from inside the flock. And then when it happens, we continue in the things that we've been taught. That word continue is a Greek word, uh, meno, which sometimes is translated abide. In fact, it's usually translated abide. So we abide, we hang out in, we don't move from what we were taught. We stay in the word. We look to the word and say, now what do we do? We don't leave behind the teachings of God's word. And guys, I think this is the greatest temptation when we begin to be persecuted. The temptation is, okay, something has changed. This doesn't feel good. What do I need to change? Well, I need, to, I need to get excited about this cause, or I need to instead preach this, or I need to be more like them, or I need to be less like them, or we, we look to, how can I fix this? And a lot of times what that does is it takes us away from the Word. It takes us away from the Gospel. It takes us away from what the Lord wants us to be doing, the things we're supposed to be about. And I think it's a, it's a temptation, and I don't think it's how we should be doing it. We should look to those who taught you. And that's even, you know, it's okay to look at history and say, hey, what did other believers do when this happened? There's a lot of amazing, the Bible says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of people who have gone through this, and they can teach us, hey, how did they respond? And the good lessons that we can learn teach us, hey, they kept doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. It's like exactly like we saw with the Chinese Christians and the Christians in Israel and the West Bank and the Christians in Russia, right? Hey, I'm just going to do this. They can do what they want to do. I'm going to be here doing this. Yes, we should pray for and we should support those in the family of faith who are experiencing persecution, right? The Bible says if some of us suffer, all of us suffer. We should be willing to suffer with them, to pray for them, to support them in any way we can. And in the meantime, right, if living as a Christian in America right now, it's not very dangerous. We don't have to be in secret. We're not really being sanctioned in any effective way. I understand that there are Lots of things that we see on the horizon that spook us. They spook me. I don't like them either. But you know what? Let's just kind of compare and say, hey, we can still do absolutely everything that we want to do as a church. Praise God. That's good. That's a blessing. That should be exciting to us. But what should we do with that blessing? Right? In a crisis, we know, right? If you're, if you're in sports or you're in the military, what happens when you really get into that moment where the adrenaline kicks in and you're in a crisis now? You, do you get better then or do you get worse? You fall, right? They talk about you fall to the level of your training, right? The lowest level, right down to the bottom of how have you trained. That's what you find out when you get into a crisis. I believe that as the Lord gives us a blessing that we get to do exactly whatever we want to do and we are not being seriously persecuted, I think we need to use this time to prepare ourselves to be trained in godliness and in the word so that if that happens or when that happens, and I don't claim to have a special word from the Lord, I'm not going to tell you this or that, I don't know. But I believe that at some point, if this is how we have this blessing now, I believe that at some point we'll be persecuted. Maybe it won't happen in my lifetime. I have absolutely no idea. But if that comes to me or to my family or to our church, I want us to be using this time now to prepare in the Word so that when that happens, our training, right, is what holds fast. The Bible says you hold fast. You look to the people that taught you and say, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Because here's this moment. When Paul got persecuted, right, what did Paul do? Sometimes... He stays right there, right? Well, they beat us, and now we're in jail. 
let's sing. Let's go back and we're going to do it again, right? He didn't change anything. Sometimes he ran. He said, hey, guys, uh, can you, I'm going to go over the wall. You put me down in a basket. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? He, he knew the Lord had sent him somewhere else. He didn't stay. Sometimes he bargained. He utilized all the tools he had, right? He said, ah, I'm a Roman citizen, so technically, right? And he did all that stuff. He, was, he did many different things in the face of persecution. Paul's main concern wasn't the tactics, right? Well, in this situation, here's exactly what you do. It was the strategy. Paul was going to preach Jesus Christ by any means he could no matter what. And sometimes that means was staying, and sometimes that means was fleeing, and sometimes he was going to bargain on a legal technicality. Can I encourage you guys, fight the right war. There's a lot of wrong wars we could be fighting as a church. Fight the right war. The right war is in the spiritual, in walking with the Lord, in preaching the gospel. There's enough for us to do there, right? And we're going to encounter trouble enough in this life. Let's make sure that we're fighting the right war. And this thing, and and I'll close with this. It's good to know in faith and in confidence that Jesus is watching the church when the church suffers. When we suffer for the, for the faith, when, we, when people that we see in the, in the world suffer and we're praying for them, we're not the only ones. We don't have to remind Jesus, right? We're like, hey, I, Lord, I don't know if you're aware. Jesus is watching. When Pastor Tyler taught us through the book of Acts, I think he even mentioned this, so I'm not going to dwell on it, but the first martyr uh, that we have in the book of Acts, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when he's going through this process, he preaches this huge sermon. It makes everybody very angry, and they decide that he needs to be eliminated. And in verse 55, it says, He, fill, full of the Holy Spirit, this is chapter 7, verse 55 in Acts, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, Jesus is on his throne. And I think Tyler even mentioned this point, but we'll, we'll say it again because it's important to say here. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? That's where Jesus is. He, he intercedes. He's doing all these things. He's on a throne. That's a kingly thing, right? Kings don't stand. You have a throne. That's why you sit. Everybody else has to stand. They come to you. So why is Jesus standing? What, what's different about that, right? And we don't know. I don't want to, this will preach, but I don't know. I'm not sure. This may be the first time Stephen ever sees Jesus, right? We're not sure. Maybe he had met him. Maybe he hadn't. Tyler can correct, correct me later on that. But it may be the first time that he's physically seeing Jesus, and he sees Jesus standing. Why is Jesus standing? I think it's kind of pretty simple. Why do you stand at football games? Right? Why do you stand at football games? Or let's make it a little more intense, because remember stoning, we have this picture of it sometimes that we get, because we're trying to, it's intense, and we don't want our kids to always see that. So we see it in a way that it really wasn't. Why do we stand at boxing matches or hockey fights? Right? You're in a hockey match, and all of a sudden, the, the puck's over here, and there's something going on over here, and the whole crowd gets up, and the energy changes, and everybody's on their feet. Right? Now, some of that is fleshly. Let's just be honest. It's not a good thing. We, we like violence. That's not great. <laughs> but you know what? There's part of it that I don't think is fleshly at all, because there's something in us that when we see someone who's about to prevail against pain to achieve a victory, we get excited. The energy changes. The crowd starts roaring, right? You ever hear a crowd roar? All of a sudden, everybody's just whoa, they're up on the seats, right? I remember when I was a little kid and we went to a hockey game and my dad puts me up so I can see. And my dad's a good dad. Anyway, um, why is Jesus? Jesus isn't that different from us, right? Jesus is sitting on his throne and maybe there's other stuff happening. There's praise or stuff going on. And Jesus says, hey, cut it out. Look, check this out. Watch what this guy's about to do. This guy's about to win. Jesus is standing up excited. He's watching with intensity because Stephen is about to finish. Stephen's about to win. Now people, you know, we would look at that and we would say, what do you mean he's about to win? Stephen's about to get his head crushed in with rocks. 
Stoning was an intense process. If you read about what they did, it wasn't just, they, they would take you to a cliff side that was twice the height of a man, the, the Talmud or the Mishnah or something says, and they would shove you off headlong so you would fall. And if the fall didn't kill you, then they'd drop one rock on your heart. And if that rock didn't kill you, that was the first stone, right, that Jesus said. If that rock didn't kill you, then they would continue throwing stones until you were dead. So Stephen is in the middle of this process, and, but Jesus knows Stephen's about to win. Stephen's about to be the victor, and Jesus is psyched about this. He's up on his feet saying, that's right. And the first thing that Stephen sees when he gets into heaven is Jesus like that. That's pretty cool. That's the way I want to go out, right? Now, I don't know what's going to happen to me in my life. I pray that I don't go out that way. Please, Lord. That's okay, right? I don't want that for me or for my family or anything like that. Of course not. And I pray that Believers around the world don't have to, to endure that. That's horrifying. It's terrible. And God is angry about it. That's not good. But no matter what happens, no matter what happens to me or to our church, I want to make sure that when I do finish, that's the way I finish, right? I want to make sure I'm glorifying the Lord. I don't want to go out in a way that I look back and I say, man, I just, I wish that I had really stuck that landing. <laughs> I wish that people knew why I was going through all that suffering I was going through. Stephen brought the Lord a lot of glory through that. And we know that not even just in that sense, but the church grew immediately because people saw that guy cared about that. That seems to be important to him, right? It's a testimony. That's what the word martyr means. We'll close on this. We talk about the word martyr a lot. It just means witness. Every Christian is a martyr. You don't have to die to have that, right? It just means that by the way you live, you are pointing to Jesus and saying, this is who I serve, this is who I'm living for. We can all do that. No matter what circumstances come to us, we all have that privilege of living as a martyr. And it's very important that as things get difficult or as things are good and we're blessed, that we take that up.